Okay, so Ivy, can you tell me what is preeclampsia? Yeah, so preeclampsia, what we know is that it is a disease of pregnancy. So meaning that the placenta is by means that causes this disease process to come forth. The thing is, and the reason why my answer is so ambiguous is, researchers, physicians, clinical teams, we actually don't know exactly why preeclampsia manifests itself. We're still trying to figure that out. We do know um, certain risk factors that contribute to it, but in short, we don't know exactly why it happens. What signs and symptoms would my patient exhibit if they had preeclampsia, and how do I identify it, especially in the emergency room setting? Yeah. There are patients that present with very classical symptoms. So they have that elevated blood pressure, that headache. Um, and so you can put these symptomatology together to have your diagnosis of preeclampsia. Um, and obviously your blood tests can help you with that diagnosis. And by you, I mean the clinical team, because as nurses, we don't diagnose. Um, but there are some patients that come with atemp atypical symptoms. Um, and so that's when you really need to dig and assess further to figure out if this patient presenting to you actually has preeclampsia or not. So Ivy, I heard you say high blood pressures. Yep. As an ED nurse, 140 over 90 isn't something that would be concerning to me. So in the population where my patient is either pregnant with a blood pressure like that, or they're within six weeks postpartum with that blood pressure, would that be concerning to you or should I be looking further into that? So with our pregnant patients with elevated blood pressure, we categorize them in four criteria. So meaning, A, did you come into this pregnancy with um, elevated blood pressures? Meaning you have chronic hypertension already, right? Do you have gestational hypertension? meaning that you came into this pregnancy without high blood pressures, but because now you're pregnant, you are now exhibiting elevated blood pressures, but not exactly um, showing me any other symptoms of preeclampsia and or you're less than 20 weeks pregnant. So 20 weeks pregnant is essentially that cutoff point where we believe that the placenta is now contributing to this disease process. So the 20 week gestation is like that benchmark. So before 20 weeks, we're going to call you gestational hypertension. After 20 weeks, we're going to say um, preeclampsia with additional symptoms. So then that third criteria um, that I mentioned previously is having um, elevated blood pressures after 20 weeks of pregnancy, but something else. So for example, elevated blood pressures and a headache, elevated blood pressures and um, um, protein in your urine. Um, so if you actually look at our policy and policy tech, if you go into the search um, engine and you just write magnesium sulfate, you're going to find a policy that discusses severe range blood pressures in pregnancy. And in there, there's a hypertensive emergency link that helps you understand your management for these patients. And so that fourth category, um, so I, I said there was four, um, is that eclampsia and so eclampsia is a patient you'll you'll know uh, because uh, they'll be seizing for you and so it's tricky to sometimes know what that patient falls in in the emergency room because you're just trying to identify 
hey, I have these elevated blood pressures. What do these mean? And so if you have a patient who's pregnant, 140 over 90, you need to figure out her history. Like, is, does she have chronic hypertension? Is this new? Is this ongoing? Um, and so it's putting the whole pieces together. Uh, unfortunately, preeclampsia isn't always very black and white. And so that's why we have, unfortunately, patients that fall through the cracks. So let's say this patient comes in, they have a headache and elevated blood pressure, and they are postpartum. And we are suspecting potential for preeclampsia. What um, testing or imaging would we expect the physician to order? Yeah, so you're, I'm going to highly recommend to go to Policy Tech and go um, search for that uh, magnesium sulfate in the search engine. You're going to go down to your um, policy that reviews it. And I'm telling you to do this because as someone who's well-versed, who's worked up several of these patients, it's still a good reference to have. And so on the bottom, you're going to see recommendations from ACOG. So that's the American College of Gynecologists. Um, through the SMI, which is the Safe Motherhood Initiative, their recommendations on what testing or procedures or management should take place. And they literally bullet it and outline it. So for example, baseline labs, you're gonna wanna draw your CBC, platelets, uric acid, PT, PTT, fibrinogen, CMP, so on and so forth. And again, I'm reading off of this, off of this paper. Um, it's challenging, again, to remember all the different interventions. Um, Depending on her symptomatology, you may want to start magnesium sulfate. Depending on symptomatology, you may want to order brain imaging, so on and so forth. And so all of these interventions are bulleted um, in a one-pager. Um, I also heard you mention magnesium. So a lot of times we will bolus magnesium if we've identified these patients in the emergency room. What kind of um, side effects should I be watching for? What should I educate my patient about? And is there any monitoring that I need for this patient on magnesium? Yeah, so nursing 101, you're always going to want to assess before you intervene. So before you begin your intervention with magnesium sulfate, let's assess her first. So you're going to do a um, head-to-toe assessment as you would in the ED, listen to lungs. Um, but I also want you to identify her reflexes because this is your baseline reflex meaning that if she becomes um, toxic on magnesium sulfate, the number one indicator that is going to tell you that is going to be reflexes. So it's all over the literature that the number one um, first sign is gonna be diminished reflexes. But let me tell you, when you give magnesium sulfate, it is a smooth muscle relaxant and a neurodepressant. So you will see a diminished reflex. So, uh, th and that's not unusual. What you're trying to look for is that it's, significantly dropping um, or significant difference. Um, and obviously you would assess her mentation alongside that to lead you to believe that perhaps she's magnesium sulfate toxic. Um, the antidote for that is calcium gluconate, one gram. Very rare to give. I've never seen it given, but just for your information in case you ever needed that. Things to be mindful of with administration of magnesium sulfate. And so the initial loading dose is anywhere from four to six grams. Historically, it's usually four. Nothing wrong with giving six. That is appropriate management. You must administer that bolus and the separate IV piggyback, not off of the maintenance dose. The maintenance is 40 grams in a liter of mag sulfate. 
And the reason for that is nationwide, there has been multiple errors, not only in EDs and labor and deliveries. And so it's a strong, hard red stop to always bolus off of a small piggyback and not off of the maintenance dose. Um, when you administer this, not unusual for the patient to feel some burning, some hot flashes, um, and you should stay at the bedside um, doing your blood pressures. Um, while that is infusing, it does go over 20 minutes. Um, am I missing something, Megan? Well, I think that they should be on a cardiac monitor as well as a pulse ox because of all the symptoms. So believe um, or it or side not, effects. in L and D, we don't put them on, magne- on oh! a cardiac monitor. So you wow. can uh, feel free to administer that mag and carry on <laughs> without a cardiac Excellent. monitor. <laughs> Thanks for letting me know, Ivy. Yeah, no problem. All right. So I'm going to try to explain to you how we best administer magnesium sulfate intravenously. And so you're going to have your maintenance fluids directly hooked up to your patient and the magnesium sulfate coming off the port closest to the patient. And so not unusual, and I've worked at many institutions where I've received patients from the emergency department where they direct line it into the vein. And that is not ideal because in the event that you need to expeditiously discontinue this, you're just going to take it off the port and then you can open up your fluids and it would be either lactated finger or normal saline, whatever your physician um, best wants to order. And that's why you're not putting it directly to the, um, the port of the IV. How quickly do we need to um, start the magnesium in the one liter? So let's say we've given the bolus. Um, how quickly do we need to start that infusion of magnesium for these patients? Yeah, so once you're doing the bolus, you're going to want to immediately follow up with your maintenance because if not, then you're losing that um, the pharmacokinetics and she is then going to excrete it. So let's... First, understand why we're giving magnesium sulfate. Magnesium sulfate is not given to decrease blood pressures. Um, it's a common misconception. May you have the side effect of having your blood pressure decrease? You may, you absolutely may, but that's not why we give it. We give it to prevent seizures. And so a smooth muscle relaxant, it's it goes everywhere in your body, and ideally it's to prevent the seizure of a woman exhibiting high blood pressures. So will our patient need some of our antihypertensives in addition to magnesium? Yes, it's not unusual to give those together. Now let's just talk about your atypical patient, right? Your atypical patient may not have elevated blood pressures and now they're ordering magnesium sulfate. That's a confusing moment. I've had several of those moments. Um, and that definitely promotes a conversation with your physician so that you can better understand that, that this is why we're doing um, this intervention um, because you do have your atypical patients and it's um, also mentioned in your policies. So for example, your patient may have normal blood pressures, but let's just say she has um, very high protein in her urine and she has um, epigastric pain or blurry vision or a headache those are severe features. So she is hence that deemed having um, preeclampsia and she may get magnesium sulfate. Unusual. Again, these are very unusual circumstances, but they do happen. Awesome. 
Um, Ivy, where can we get more information um, if we wanted about preeclampsia? Yeah, so ACOG does do its due diligence to discuss and describe the pathophysiology and the management of preeclampsia, but again, it's it's a lengthy document. Um, and I can understand the ED, we want like the quick and the dirty and what Absolutely. we need to know. Um, so we currently have uh, the OB, what is this called? The annual... The annual iLearn? Yes, Megan, the annual iLearn. Yes, that was put together about um, complications in pregnancy and postpartum for areas like the ER, the ICU, as well as our MCH division. Yeah, and so the reason why that one came about, and again, that's a very high-level overview, quick and dirty, what you need to know, um, because unfortunately, if you have not been aware our maternal mortality and morbidity in the United States is actually very poor. It's not ideal whatsoever. It's unacceptable. And so the Joint Commission now is trying to take matters into their own hands to help with this. And they have now required that ED, ICU, and L&D take this education annually so that we're at least a little bit more versed. Um, It's not the answer, but it's definitely a step in the right direction. So Ivy, I printed out um, the chart that you were talking about from Policy Tech on hypertensive emergencies, and I see labetal, labetalol, hydralazine, and nifedipine. Which ones do you think um, are the best, or which ones should we be utilizing? Yeah, so that's more so like the best and which one to utilize. That's up to your provider to um, identify what they prefer based also on patient history. So for example, if your patient has asthma, you're really going to want to avoid the labetalol. But what's very interesting is in recent um, literature reviews and research, so I'm going to say this has been um, about evident in the last year or two, is that nifedipine PO is actually managing these blood pressures more effectively than labetalol and hydralazine. And I can completely understand as an easy nurse and myself as an L&D nurse, like what? How is that possible? How is it that an IV push medication isn't prioritized over a PO medication? So don't get confused if they want um, PO and the fetipine 10 milligrams um, over that hydralazine or labetalol. And, and I know that's going to be like, why, why am I giving you this PO med? I know, right? You want something to work quick, but you know, that's really interesting. Yeah, so something to also be mindful of, if you're going to give that nifedipine, not unusual to eventually follow up with magnesium sulfate. They both are calcium channel blockers. Um, and so you really can lower her blood pressure um, relatively quickly. Um, and you will see that there is some literature out there that says that they're contraindicated. However, um, now with nifedipine being the leading med, um, it's not unusual to give together. So we, we do do that um, frequently, and so don't um, be surprised if they are ordered together. Awesome. And if we have any questions, do you think we could just reach out to Labor and Delivery or to the staff up here in MCH? Please do. They want to, um, they probably want to take the patient from you, and you probably want to give it up as well. Absolutely. Uh, <laughs> so please reach out. Please um, um, ask questions. You can vocera me, um, Ivy Torres, if I'm here, and if not, Labor and Delivery. We really want to collaborate with the ED team to get these women the care that they need and deserve. Yeah. Great. Thanks, Ivy. Sure.